It starts out with the, a little while and you'll see me no longer, again a little while and you'll see me. And then the disciples repeat it. And then Jesus circles back to explain, no, who's on first and what's on second? You won't see me in a little while, and then a little while longer you'll see me again. And joy and sorrow will trade places. And then he talks about asking and not asking. You won't ask anything from me, but you will ask things. This morning as we go through the passage, it's not terribly complex, it's just repetitive. Jesus' message to his disciples is simple, and his message to us is simple. He is holding out for us the promise of joy. And as we get to the end, we find out the purpose is to give us his peace. So this morning as we leave, we should leave filled and content with his peace and eagerly longing for the joy we have to be made full. And Jesus does this a couple of ways for us. He holds out for us what our hope is in the end. What is it that we hope for? And then he explains to us our comfort in the meantime. What is it that we hope for? And what is our comfort while we wait for our hope to become reality? And to explain it, I thought I would start where Jesus ends. It's a little daunting to take things in reverse order from Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's a mistake. But we're going to try it out. Jesus is about to pray for his disciples, not just the ones in his presence, but for us as well. And we'll see that next week. In chapter 17, the passage we're so familiar with, the high priestly prayer. He's about to pray for them and for us. But his discussion in chapter 16 ends with an explanation of where these disciples are headed in the next few days. And it's fairly daunting. On its own, it would be fairly discouraging. He ends the passage a couple lines up from the end with a statement about their future abandonment, their desertion. They're about to all be AWOL apostles. And he's saying these things to them so that they would have his peace. I'm starting where Jesus ends because Jesus explains these things to his disciples chronologically backwards. If you look at the passage, he begins with the end of time. And his final return. And then he moves on to the intervening centuries and millennia and what his ministry will look like and what our privileges will be with his Father while we wait for him to return. And then he ends with a very brief, very discouraging statement about what lies in wait for these disciples over the next few days right after he has made these statements to them. In verses 16 through 23, it is our eschatological hope. It is their hope and ours that Jesus will return at the end of history to set things right. But we're left with the picture of waiting. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world will celebrate my leaving, and you will be left with sorrow and misery. I don't know about you, but that is a horrible way for me to hear hopeful news. 
that sounds terribly unhopeful. That sounds like there's hope way out in the distance that makes no difference to you now. And that's not what Jesus is proclaiming to them, and it's not what Jesus is proclaiming to us. But he begins with a hope that won't be realized until he returns to set history right. So in verses 23 through 28, while they wait to see him again, he explains what our privileges will be. What will his ministry have won for us while we wait for him to return and complete all of redemption? And then in verses 29 through 33, when they are at their most excited, when they are at their most relieved because he's spoken so plainly to them and they think they've gotten it and they think their faith is set, He gives them this bracing dose of reality. Before I leave, you're going to desert me. The faith you now proclaim so loudly and so boldly will be cowardice in the next couple of days. Your eagerness will turn into hiding. And so Jesus starts with the hope at the end of time that pulls his disciples out of this tragedy and through the intervening period of waiting, the period in which we live. Jesus has to start at the end because it's a vision of what waits for us that carries us all the way through that trouble. A little bit like walking back down the aisle with Henry towards Mackenzie, knowing that there's a reunion at the end of it, knowing that the trouble is temporary, knowing that the trouble and the misery and the fear do not have the last word or the last laugh. And so Jesus starts at the end so that this hope can carry them through a very discouraging period of days, a very long period of waiting when they will be given the privileges of sons the period of waiting in which we are given the privilege of sons and daughters. And just to be clear, when he talks about being gone for a little while and then them seeing him, there's every chance that they initially think he's talking about the suffering he's about to endure. While they don't fully grasp that, he's covered that material enough. They know that there's a temporary anguish coming they might be thinking this is a very short, very confined leaving. Knowing that that's what waits for Jesus on the other end of this discourse and prayer, we could assume the same. We could think that when he says, a little while and you won't see me, he means in my burial, and a little while meaning the three days, and then you'll see me again in the resurrection. But as he goes on to talk about leaving to go to the Father... And as he explains coming back so that they have nothing left to ask, it becomes clear that what he means is his going to the Father in his ascension and his coming back for us when we have nothing left to ask because everything is put right. In that day you will ask nothing of me because there will be nothing left that you need is the implication.
And so what he's setting them up for is not three days of fear. It's not a handful of days where they're worried about persecution and trying to make sense of his crucifixion. As awful as that is, when he talks about the sorrow that they'll feel, the weeping and the lament, and the world's rejoicing, he's talking about his absence between his first coming to earth, his first ministry here, and his return when he ministers present with us and puts all things right. And he talks about that time as a time of weeping and lament and celebration at our expense when the world rejoices. Remember, over the last several chapters, we have seen that the world has hated Jesus and it will hate us. And so Jesus prepares them for a time when in his absence the world will celebrate And we will be sorrowful. And you don't need a lot of explanation about what that means. You understand sorrow very well. In Jesus' absence, we still live in a sin-cursed world. In a world that lives under the curse and fall. And so we see the curse at work in us. In our sin and temptation, we see the curse at work around us in the sin of others and the things that we suffer. And we feel the curse in a world that is not right, that groans and waits, as Paul says, using the same imagery, with the pains of childbirth. Pains that are agonizing, like explosions and tornadoes and bridge collapses, and oppression, and abuse, and neglect, and loneliness, and depression, and sickness, and divorce, and abandonment. When we encounter those things, the weight of Jesus' last statement feels like an understatement to us. In the world, you will have tribulation. The word he uses there is the same he uses of the mother's anguish. It's translated differently, but it's the same word. When he talks about a woman going into childbirth, and I can only speak based on what people have told me. I have not born any children. But from what I can tell, it's rough. From what I can tell, there is real anguish, and it accelerates. It starts off as mild discomfort. And then the discomfort gathers friends and teams up, and it becomes real pain. And it happens more often, and it happens more quickly, and it happens for longer. My apologies to all of you who are pregnant. I'm not trying to discourage you. But the tribulation that we encounter in this world, with a world that hates us and in a world that has been cursed because of sin and rebellion, it starts to feel like that. The longer you live on this earth, the more joy you will know. 
the more of the Lord's redemption you will see, but also, as we have heard repeatedly, as we've been reading through Ecclesiastes normally in our readings after the assurance of pardon, you will come to know pain and suffering. You will see pain and suffering in ways that you have not imagined, and you will experience it more than you expected. And if we had no vision of what waits for us, like Proverbs 29 says, without a vision, we would perish. When there is no end in sight, the people languish and wither. And so Jesus starts by giving them hope. There's going to be a period where you won't see me, and during that period you will have anguish and sorrow and weeping. And around you, those who don't know me, those who have hated me and hate you, they'll celebrate. They will rejoice in my absence because they'll love it. But in a little while longer, I'll return. When I return for you, there'll be nothing left to ask because all will have been accomplished. All will be set right. Your sorrow will be irrevocably traded for joy. You will have joy that no one can take from you and a joy that makes you forget the anguish. Just like he describes the woman in childbirth, she remembers her anguish no longer because of the child that's entered the world. Paul says this repeatedly in Romans 8 and in 2 Corinthians 4, the idea that the sufferings we know now the afflictions and the misery, the effects of the curse inside us and around us, the pain we see in others and sympathize with, the pain that we feel ourselves, these things aren't worthy to be compared with the magnitude of joy and glory that wait for us. But it doesn't mean waiting doesn't hurt. And so what Jesus holds out for us is a hope so much bigger and so much better that when we find it in fullness, this will feel like nothing. And I don't say that to erase what you feel now. Let me be very clear. I am not trying to say that your pain doesn't hurt or your pain doesn't matter. I'm trying to tell you what Jesus is telling us. The joy that waits for you is so good, you'll forget it. And that's real hope. The joy that makes you weep and groan and sucks the life out of you. The pain that does those things will be forgotten. It will seem so insignificant next to the joy of having Jesus back face to face. I'm going to, you all are going to think I'm beating a dead horse. I'm going to keep using Henry as my illustration I tried my best to look into that kid's eyes and comfort him. It wasn't my presence that he wanted. He wanted to be held, but he wanted to be held by someone specific. While we wait for Christ to return, we long to be held and to have things put right. There is only one presence that will actually set all of those things right. In the meantime, we have the ministry of the Spirit, but we wait for the face-to-face comfort 
of standing in Jesus' presence in a creation that's remade as people who are remade. When our pain is erased, when sorrow is exchanged for joy, when we're settled and the chaos is over. And in the meantime, Jesus says that we pray. Not to be too nitpicky, but look carefully at 22 and 23. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And in that day, you will ask nothing of me, implying all of your needs have been met. There is no pain left. There's nothing left to ask. You have it. And then he goes on in the rest of the verse and in the next segment to explain how we ask things currently. So in 23, he's looking ahead. In that day, in my day, when I return and set all things right, you'll have nothing left to ask of me. And then he continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you do ask of the Father in my name currently, he will give it to you. He says, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. If you've been paying attention, this is the same idea he's just explained with his coming. So what are we supposed to make of this prayer and its fulfillment and our sorrow and our waiting and joy made full? Jesus has given us the privilege of prayer, the privilege of entering and approaching the throne, like we sang in our first song, Approach My Soul, the Mercy Seat. We come boldly before the throne of grace, given the privilege of sons and daughters to ask things directly from the Father. We don't pass notes like in class. We don't hand a note off to a saint and ask him if he'll carry it to Mary, who will carry it to Jesus, who will carry it to the Father. And that's not just Catholic bashing. Jesus says we don't even hand the note to him. We come to the Father in his name. But the Father deals with us as sons and daughters who stand in His place, who wear His righteousness, who have His status and enjoy His privileges. While we wait and while we suffer in a sin-cursed world, we approach the Father directly and we ask for things in Jesus' name because He has given us all that's His. And we come to ask for very specific things. That is how the joy being made full is tied to the boldness of asking and receiving. By asking for things in his name, this doesn't mean we tag on a few magic words at the end of every request. Lord Jesus, give me a Ferrari. I ask all these things in your name. This is not Janis Joplin's, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz or a color TV or the next round. Oh yeah, and in your name, now you have to do it. When you come to ask of the Father directly and you ask in the name of Jesus, you are asking and I am asking in ways that are consonant. They are in keeping with his character and his intentions for us. You see this in movies when people say, stop in the name of the law. When we pronounce things in the name, 
like we did in the ordination this morning, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pronounce these men ordained. Or when I baptized Henry in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they aren't magic words that twist God's arm. We are asking or pronouncing things that are consistent with his intentions toward us. When we ask for things in his name from the Father, specifically here that our joy may be full, the joy of his return, we are asking for more of his life at work in us and ultimately for his return. Would you do the things for us, Father, as your children that Jesus promised for us by the Spirit? Would you grow your grace in us? Would you bear your fruit in our lives? Would you grow our faith? Would you assure us of our hope? Would you put our sin to death? Would you comfort the afflicted? Would you stop oppression? Would you bring justice? And all of those things are culminated in a single prayer request, and we say it at the end of every worship service. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Most directly tied to this context, and the thing we should probably pray for most fervently while we wait for Jesus' return, is His return. Complete your intentions toward us. Send the Son back to gather us as a people. Make us right. Fix your world. The things we ask in His name are consistent with His intentions toward us. His intention to remove our sorrow and give us His joy a joy that can never be taken from us. And so we pray for all of these things in the meantime. More of the fruit of the gospel. More conviction and challenge for self-righteousness and more comfort for the hurting. A greater sense of our forgiveness and a greater degree of His grace operating in our lives as He makes us new, changing our loves, strengthening us, strengthening us for the fight against sin and the resistance of temptation. All the while, underneath all, or above all of that rather, above all of those things, praying this singular request, come quickly, Lord Jesus, make our joy full, remove our sorrow and undo our lament. Because all of those other purposes, all of those other intentions, all of those other glorifying things are complete when he comes back. And so what Jesus has set up for his first disciples and what Jesus has set up for us is an eager longing and hope that will only be finally fulfilled when He embraces us again face to face. No other presence will satisfy us. No other presence will set things right. No other presence will make our joy full and fully remove our weeping. And so we pray for the effects of His gospel in us and in the world around us. We pray for new faith, and those that have not heard or believed. 
We pray for growing faith in those who have. Ultimately, we pray for him to come back and gather his people to himself and embrace us and put away the curse. Jesus is giving us the privilege of prayer. And Jesus is giving us very firm hope in his return and in a joy that cannot be taken away from us. And we need these things to carry us through a world in which we now have trouble. In the world and under the curse, we all know trouble. We have all lost brothers and husbands and sons and health and dignity and jobs. Some of us have lost marriages. In this world, we groan and we know anguish. But there's a joy coming that turns it around so that we forget it. There is a joy coming in Jesus' presence when he sets all of those things right. In our resurrection, when death is undone, when sickness is gone, when those we've lost in the Lord embrace us again. In the world and under the curse, we have lost those things, but in Christ and under his grace, We are losing shame, we are losing despair, and guilt, and fear, and anxiety, and we have the privilege of entering the throne room, coming to the Father as sons and daughters who are loved because of Jesus, but loved directly. The Father himself loves you, he says. The Father doesn't answer you because he has to. The Father doesn't listen to you because he's willing to tolerate you and put up with you. While you wait for Jesus to return, the Father loves you. It's because the Father loves you that he will send Jesus Jesus to gather you again. But in the meantime, you have the privilege of praying to him as sons and daughters in Christ who are loved. And so we look forward in eager hope and longing for Christ's return. When we will see him again, and our sorrow will be turned to joy. And in the meantime, he has given us his peace. He has given us this hope. He grows our faith. He establishes our assurance. He gives us the promise of restoration. And so in this world, you do have trouble. But never forget that Jesus is the man who entered the world at great pain to take all of your misery and to give you all of his joy. He is the one who overcame the world, and he is the one who holds you. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus has come and overcome the world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Son into the world, the one who came to make you known and to accomplish and win our redemption. Lord Jesus, we praise you for taking our misery. You had no reason to weep or lament or feel our pain and sorrow, and yet you came graciously to accept all of these things in yourself and become sin for us in our place on the cross. You occupied our tomb. You overcame our death. You have overcome the world and you have overcome the curse. Continue to encourage us by overcoming the curse in us with the privilege of our sanctification. Bring to life all of the things in us that you have called beautiful. Give us greater love for yourself and the Father and the Spirit. Assure our hearts as we come boldly to the Father and ask things in your name according to your kind intentions toward us. And above all these things, we pray fervently, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in keeping with the character and for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.